Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some emails because I have a long list of emails from patrons that I haven't gotten to yet, and I thought I would just uh, respond to them today. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This email is about compassion fatigue from patron Tara. Patron Tara says, What about a podcast on compassion fatigue? For example, I teach criminal justice at a university and spend lots of time researching and teaching about serial killers, sexual assault, rape culture, etc. Most of the the information I have found on compassion fatigue focuses on first responders and therapists, but they don't talk about professors or prosecutors, etc. End of email. Yes, patron... Slade, uh, patron Tara slash Slade, (laughs) you are uh, absolutely correct. Um, And let's talk about that briefly because I've already done episodes on compassion fatigue, secondary trauma, but uh, we can't talk about this. Uh, In case people don't know, people who work with people who have been traumatized are at risk of developing PTSD symptoms or post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms themselves. So first responders on the scene, I'm actually just, I'm watching this documentary on Netflix that's about the Oklahoma City bombing. Amazing documentary so far. Just, I, I, you know, I remember I was around during that time and I remember seeing that on the news in the mid nineties and knew a little bit about it, but watching this documentary, it's, it's just so much more, you know, in 94, I think, when Oklahoma City bombing um, happened, it was at a time before the internet, right? The internet was just kind of getting going at universities, but it wasn't, you know, obviously what it would become later. And so if something happened in the world, even if it was in your own country, you had to watch the news. And the news was only on every once in a while. And if you didn't have cable, which I don't think I did in 94, you had to tune in with your rabbit ears and just happen to catch the news. And at the age of 23, I don't know how interested I was in watching the news. So I just kind of picked up on stuff here and there. Whereas today with a click of a button, you can, you can know what's happening, you know, in full detail and see, you know, all the pictures that you want to see. So watching this documentary about the Oklahoma city bombing by Timothy McVeigh, I am seeing 99% of stuff that I've never seen before. And just a little side check here about that bombing and and what was happening at the time. We talk about today about racism and white supremacy and politicians and, uh, you know, um, internal terrorism that that's happening in our country. And it feels as though it's, it's something new, but all you got to do is just crack a history book or watch one of these sorts of documentaries and realize, oh, no, th- this this has been something that America has been dealing with forever. And in some ways, it's empirically better now than it was before in, in terms of where uh, the, the – um, now, you know, by what measure, it's hard to tell. Um, membership in the KKK, you can sort of gauge that or – but – at the very least, it it's I, I've said this before on the podcast. Whenever I 
learn about history, even going back to the Romans or the Greeks, I am often comforted by the fact that humans have always struggled with the same issues and that we'll get through our current issues today. Uh, Past presidents had uh, um, corruption and we got through it. Past uh, movements were afoot to kill um, you know the, the the white supremacy movement that is depicted in this documentary about the Oklahoma City bombing is alarming and something that at the time I just did not know existed because they didn't show it on the five o'clock news in my you know in Seattle and so I just was completely ignorant about this sort of stuff. I did know about the KKK headquarters being on Hayden Lake in northern Idaho because as a kid every summer. We would go to Hayden Lake in northern Idaho because my grandparents had a cabin up there. And so I've talked about before how I hated um, camping. (laughs) Well, the closest we ever came to camping was going – we would go for a week to Hayden Lake on this cabin. And there was like acres and acres and beach and boats. And it was just like the best summertime of all time. But whenever we left our property – my dad, who's Japanese, would have to sort of get ready. He would he would kind of prepare us. He'd say, okay, we're heading into town, and there's a chance that some KKK guys are going to confront us, and I just want you to know that things might get ugly. <laughs> and I just remember looking up at my dad just thinking – what do you mean? You know, what, what does this mean? You know, cause just around the lake, Hayden Lake is this huge lake, but nearby was the headquarters of KKK. Imagine vacationing just around the corner from the KKK headquarters. Um, anyway, so the first responders at, at a, uh, event like that, when the building has collapsed similar to nine, nine 11, the first responders are often, the people who are studied with regards to compassion fatigue or or secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. They're the people who didn't experience the quote-unquote trauma directly, but they were, they were there soon after and therefore uh, uh, start to have secondary trauma is what they call it. Also therapists who work with traumatized victims, who work with sexual assault victims or sexual sexual molestation victims. These therapists are often studied as people who will suffer from compassion fatigue or secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, burnout. But as patron Tara slash slash Slade is saying, um, Tara is saying, uh, what about, what about professors who, who lecture about trauma what what about us? Um, yeah, it's um, you know it, the thing is 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 any exposure to trauma and and a really a better term for trauma is fear or terror. The you know trauma I think is associated. To, it's I think the connotation when you hear trauma is you hear you think of a lot of people think of physical trauma right a, a trauma to the brain or you know, you go through a car accident, you have trauma to your leg or something. And then, you know, some people will extend that out to trauma of war. You know, some someone 
is trying to kill you and you escape or something or the trauma of being sexually assaulted or something. People aren't understanding that, which is good because back in the day, none of this was acknowledged. So we're heading in the right direction. But I think a better term is just fear. If you go through a significant fear episode, it doesn't matter what the context is, that will cause the brain to change in such a way that will produce PTSD symptoms. So in other words, you could hallucinate something, and if it makes you afraid enough, then this can produce PTSD, and this is traumatic for people. So literally nothing could happen to you, but if you're sufficiently afraid, then you your brain will be given an opportunity to, pro- to produce the changes that will produce PTSD later on. So if, as a professor patron, Tara, if you're talking about trauma a lot, then of course, this is going to put, you know, fear into your brain, you're, you're going to have terror around that. It's terrifying to as I'm watching this documentary about the I said that word funny documentary, it, it, I'm watching this documentary about the Oklahoma City bombings. And not only was I not there, but I'm not a first responder. I'm not a therapist talking to these victims. I'm just watching a documentary. But I can feel in my bones the precursors to PTSD. If I expose myself to this Oklahoma City bombing and the images and the stories just in this documentary on Netflix, then I can absolutely... Uh, begin to have the formation of the brain processes that will lead to PTSD. So it, of course, professors can, can develop that if they are uh, talking about trauma and they're susceptible to it, or they're not getting help themselves. Cause that's another protective fact. That's a protective factor is if you're monitoring it and taking care of yourself. Another thing that kind of bugs me about the way that people talk about PTSD and vicarious trauma is when they talk about secondary trauma, compassion fatigue, they'll talk about it as people developing, quote unquote, PTSD-like symptoms, PTSD-like symptoms, as if they're not real PTSD symptoms. They're just PTSD-like. And I find that to be a problem because uh, secondary trauma can be full-blown PTSD, If someone like a therapist hears story after story of five-year-olds who are being raped by their parents, then it is, you know, natural for that person to develop full-blown PTSD. It's not PTSD-like symptoms. It's full-blown PTSD. So I think we have some further um, awareness room to grow. Also, it's important to to know with regards to all this stuff that we're humans. You know, we have very squishy brains that are not quote unquote strong. We we're not as quote unquote strong as we think we are. And when we expose ourselves to things that are terrorizing to us, our brains will have an effect. There will there will be an effect. And this is proven time and time again, you know, trauma hopelessness, um, you know, just all these kinds of things. It it changes the way your brain works, um, usually. So, 
All right. Well, let me just talk about the science of compassion fatigue, unless you don't know already. These are just off the top of my head, so I might be missing some. But the, the main thing that I often tell people is when you notice that you don't have any empathy or compassion for people who are suffering, if you notice, so, so normally, you know, so, so right now, just think to yourself, do I still have empathy? Do I have real empathy and compassion for people who are suffering today? If, if you don't, then think about the level of empathy you've had in the past and compare the two. If you, if you have much less empathy now than you did before, then that's a sign that you are being overexposed to trauma in some way. Now, if you never had empathy to begin with and you don't have empathy now, then it's hard to know what's going on with you. Uh, I would advise that you try to work on your skills of compassion, which is possible anyway. Other signs are feeling just just feeling burnt out, just you know, I, I, like you just don't want to go to work anymore. You don't want to. You just you feel fatigue, literally being tired as you're approaching. You know, for patron Slade, if you're heading to work and you're going to lecture about trauma and you're just dreading it, then that's a sign. Also, of course, depressive depressive symptoms, anxiety, stress, and PTSD symptoms. You know, like flashbacks. Intrusive thoughts, feeling on the edge, being irritable, uh, etc. And and the last symptom I can think of of compassion fatigue is that you can't sleep, or that your sleep is disrupted in in in, in some way. I did find one study that looked at people you know uh, who aren't normally looked at when it comes to compassion fatigue. They, this one study looked at interpreters, so you know interpreters who will interpret spoken language between two parties. They found that there are high levels of secondary traumatic stress among interpreters who are working with people and material regarding trauma, which makes total sense, right? So if you're, if you're an interpreter for sexual abuse victims, if, or if you're an interpreter for people who have been through war stress, then of course you're going to be, uh, given the opportunity to develop PTSD and maybe particularly for interpreters because you are speaking the words verbatim. You know, they, the, a person is telling the, trying to communicate that they saw their children dead in this really bloody gory way. And then as an interpreter, you have to say every single word to the, you know, the person that you're interpreting to. You have to repeat every word. Yeah, absolutely. You can imagine that group experiencing secondary stress. Secondary, secondary trauma is not talked about enough anyway, and it's particularly not talked about among these, shall we say, ignored populations, such as interpreters, professors, prosecutors, these kinds of people. I suspect that in the future, these populations will be looked at because it's just a matter of time. And then they will get the same amount of uh, lack of attention as everyone else's. Cause you know, as I was saying before, therapists or as patron Slade is saying, you know, therapists and uh, first responders are often talked about in literature, police officers, these kinds of people, EMTs, uh, they're often the ones being discussed in literature, but they're still not being discussed enough. I know people who 
have never heard of it and uh, they work in these fields. I know people who are suffering in this way and have never heard of the term. So uh, secondary stress, vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue is something that a very small percentage of us even know about. So uh, we have a lot of work to do in this way. The the point of, of raising awareness is not for people to avoid responding first, for instance, or to have people avoid becoming therapists. But there are things we can do as a profession. One, awareness and uh, nipping it in the bud early obviously can help. But also just maybe not having one therapist have an entire client load of people who have been sexually assaulted recently. Just understanding that that's not likely to go well for that professional. You know, it'd be akin to uh, someone's working on a construction site and you ask one person to pick up an entire truck and move it across the construction site. You would say, well, that's a little much for that person. You, let's let's get a bunch of people on that job. Well, the same goes for our professions that expose us to traumas. You know, for, for patron Tara, if you find yourself having to shoulder the burden of lecturing about this topic so much so that you start developing PTSD symptoms or full-blown PTSD, then perhaps having guest lectures that talk about it while you're not in the room or something. You know, there's just different things, measures that you can take to, to keep us in the game. Because when we are suffering from compassion fatigue, by definition, we don't have compassion anymore. We don't have empathy and, and we don't like our jobs. And we're not going to be very good at our jobs and, and we might quit, which none of us want. We, we want these people helping and we want these people spreading the word and we want these people uh, responding. And in order for them to be healthy enough to do that sort of stuff, we have to help them with their vicarious trauma, their compassion fatigue. All right, let's go to another email. All right, this email is from patron Jamie. Patron Jamie writes, I just finished my master's degree and am now working as a school-based clinician in speech-language pathology. I would be very interested to hear your thoughts on professional collaboration across various related fields regarding assessment, treatment, referrals, etc., could you perhaps talk about professional collaboration? In my graduate program, we took a course on basic counseling skills for working with clients and families of clients as it relates to their communication impairments. We spent quite a bit of discussion on operating within our scope of practice and knowing when to refer a client for psychotherapy. For example, someone who stutters may experience quite a bit of social anxiety related to their stutter or an adult with aphasia might experience depression related to their loss of communication. And we were taught that we should refer these people to also see a psychotherapist. There are many potential scenarios like this. I would be very interested to hear your thoughts and experiences surrounding the topic of, of collaboration and making referrals. Well, thank you, patron Jamie. Interesting question. Um... There's a lot I could say about this. In in my field, what I'll say is that there's just not enough collaboration or consultation uh, with other types of clinicians. You say 
in your email that you were trained to refer your clients to psychotherapy when psychotherapeutic issues arose. But I doubt that many psychotherapists are trained to refer their clients to speech language clinicians when they detect issues in your wheelhouse. I think this is because our history is mostly a history of being isolated from the medical field. It's just a, my interpretation of the history of psychotherapy. I mean, there's certainly been times when it was quite integrated with the medical field, but in the last number of decades, it I think it's been mostly isolated. And also, many of us are in private practice, which is where we can have the highest job satisfaction, the highest control over our job, and frankly, the highest income. Whereas in many other fields like medicine and perhaps speech pathology, those clinicians are often embedded within our larger system that encourages and facilitates referrals between the various disciplines. For, for example, I'm having a problem with my back. Uh, it's an old football injury. I broke a bone in my back and it's it's coming back to haunt me in the age of 46. So I went to my primary care physician, and he referred me to radiology for x-rays, and they referred me to physical therapy. And now the physical therapist is thinking about referring me to a neurologist. Hopefully it will come to that, but maybe it will. So in this example, we have at least four different professionals who are all highly collaborating, right? But for us therapists, there's a much weaker culture of referrals to other clinicians. Now, this isn't to say that all therapists don't refer to others, because many do. But I don't think our referral system, particularly in private practice, is robust enough. For example, whenever I have a client who needs to talk with a competent psychiatrist, I never know who to refer them to because whenever I get a good psychiatrist on my personal list of referrals, that psychiatrist quickly fills up and they can't take any more patients. So I, I often just resort to telling people to call their medical insurance because I, I, I can never uh, you know, direct them to someone that I know who actually has space in their practice. And that seems sort of screwed up to me, you know, as a clinician who works in mental health, I should, I should be connected with a bunch of psychiatrists who have room in their schedule, but it's, it's not how we generally practice. Now this is changing, but it's, but it's changing very slowly, but it, but it is changing. There, there, there are a lot of efforts to integrate mental health with medicine and other fields. There seemed to be a lot of energy, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. It seems to be kind of slowing down, or I don't know, maybe I'm just not aware of it. But there's there's efforts to integrate mental health uh, in the city, you know, like in the example I gave about, you know, I go to my primary care physician who refers me to x-rays, who refers me to physical therapists, who refers me to neurologists. Well, why is the, the mental health field not like that? Why can't you just go to a hospital and see a therapist. Therapists are, you know, we're, we're rarely in schools. We're, we're usually in these other offices that are just for mental health. It's just, it's weird that you have offices that are just for mental health. And then you have all the other medical professionals in another, in the hospital, you know, I'm talking in generalities because of course there is overlap in some ways, but, but, why? Anyway, I, th I think you get my point. <laughs> um, 
Now, there are efforts to integrate mental health with other fields, like having a group practice or a, an office in a hospital that has a therapist, a psychiatrist, a primary care physician, a dietitian, a psychologist, a chemical dependency professional, maybe a, a sleep specialist, um, you know, other kinds of mental health specialists. There are uh, definitely group practices like that, and there are definitely wings of hospitals that are emerging and clinics and, and other kinds of offices that are, uh, you know, providing this kind of service to, you know, have a one-stop shop for everything. And there's a lot of evidence that this sort of model has good, if not better outcomes for patients, which makes sense. You know, if I, as a therapist can quickly consult with a, a number of other clinicians who are who are just across the hall or next door, then my ability to help my clients is, is definitely enhanced and my ability to refer clients is definitely enhanced. But our field is moving very slowly in this direction. I'm guessing too slowly. Um, if it's one thing I've learned about my profession, it's that it takes really long time to change the way we do things and to change our culture. I mean, we still have therapists walking around who don't believe that sexism exists. I mean, just think about that. Or who don't understand what proper trauma therapy is. It's crazy. And for decades, we've been trying to change these things, among other things. But it just takes forever to change the way that our field thinks about things. So I suspect it'll be decades before we see a major shift in the way therapists are integrated with larger clinical systems. The other thing is, is therapists like to work alone. <laughs> and in some ways it's like, well, who doesn't really, who doesn't like to work alone? Really? It's just like, you know, in private practice, I don't have any drama unless I have it with myself, I guess there's no um, overhead, right? I, I get all the, uh, what do you call it? Revenue. <laughs> um, um Therapists like to work alone. We we don't like people breathing down our necks. It's the way we've always been for the most part. I mean, Freud didn't practice with a bunch of clinicians. He he practiced in his home. He definitely networked with other people, but he practiced out of his home. And so in this way, uh, you could say we haven't changed in 130 years. Like, you know, like Freud, I see my clients in my home office and I'm just by myself. <laughs> um also, I think there's a factor of suspicion in my field. Many therapists don't trust other clinicians. Not all, of course, but I, I, in my anecdotal experience, I've seen many therapists who think that psychiatrists are just incompetent, for instance, and they think that psychiatrists just throw medications uh, you know, at their patients and, and don't listen to their patients. And so... A lot of therapists I know are just generally suspicious of even giving their clients to other uh, professionals because they're worried that these other professionals are actually going to harm their, their clients. So that's another factor I see. Also, many therapists are just not trained in assessing and detecting issues that are outside their area of expertise. For example, regarding speech pathology – like what patron Jamie is, I'm not sure many therapists would even know to refer a stuttering client to a speech pathologist. So there's that issue too. Maybe there should be a, 
conference or something in which various clinicians come together and interact. I mean, I'm guessing these conferences do exist, but, but I've never been to one. <laughs> and, and, uh, of all the conferences I go to and the, you know, people I work with now, I will say that, uh, as another example of this integration, um, uh, my colleague, Dr. Jennifer Sampson, who has been on the podcast to talk about hoarding disorder before, you might remember her. Um, she's a close colleague of mine at Antioch in the Couple and Family Therapy Program. And she started the Hoarding Project, which is a institute that is uh, set up to research hoarding disorder and to, all, and to research treatments and to facilitate treatment proper treatment, evidence-based treatment of people with hoarding disorder. And the model, from what I can tell, that they follow is one in which is highly integrated with other professionals. And she holds uh, Jennifer Sampson, Dr. Jennifer Sampson. She runs a conference every year to train and to pull all these different people together. And people... And, and you know, we're not talking just medical and mental health people. We're talking like fire department because sometimes hoarders will have fire codes or, you know, issues along those lines. Um, animal, animal people, you know, because the pets might need help or something. And so you, the idea is, is if you get all those professionals uh, together to help a an individual and their family, by the way, because you need a family therapist because families are often – highly involved in these uh, hoarders uh, system. Once you pull all these people together, then you're much more likely to see a long-lasting, sustained change in these uh, hoarders, people who suffer from hoarding disorder. So, so the, yeah, so there's definitely pockets that are, that are happening, but, um, but I, I don't think it's enough in my opinion. Actually, when I think about all this, I think it's just a problem of private practice, really. Because when I've worked at agencies, like like a few years ago, I worked part-time at a small chemical dependency agency, uh, sort of a, a cutting-edge agency that actually went out of business <laughs> because of funding issues. But I think it was just because it was a very small organization that um, – just never really figured out how to charge people enough money, in my opinion. <laughs> but anyway, um, I worked side by side at that at that office with chemical dependency professionals and counselors and marriage and family therapists and psychiatrists and physicians, all in the effort of helping people to recover from addiction. So it, it seems to me that private practice is really the problem. You know, it's much harder to network with other clinicians when when you're in private practice, because especially if you're working in a home office, right? Because I know people who work in buildings, uh, you know, office buildings, and there's a lot of other sorts of clinicians. Usually it's just other therapists, but at least there's other therapists nearby. Uh, but when you're in private practice, particularly when you're operating out of a home office or an office that isn't shared with a bunch of other clinicians, then it can be extremely isolating and, and just harder to know when to refer or know who to talk to or, um, you know, that sort of thing. But as I was saying, private practice is where by far the highest pay is um, in general. 
And it's where you have the greatest control over your work, you know, the paperwork, the clients, the population, the hours. When you're in private practice, you can you can choose to work some days and not work other days. Whereas if you're working in an office somewhere, you can't do that, right? So yeah, patron Jamie, your education program was was wise in that it emphasized how to you know, emphasized how to, um, it emphasized in, <laughs> why am I having such a hard time? Your educational program, your tra- your graduate program was wise because it helped you to understand your scope of practice and when you should refer and, you know, and who you should refer to. So, you know, that's good for you. All right, let's take a break. And when we get back, I'll read another email. What do you say? Okay, we're back from the break. If you haven't already become a patron, please become a patron of the podcast. When you become a patron, you get access to all of our premium episodes in which we do a lot of deep dives, you know, episodes that are hours and hours long. (laughs) So if you're interested in that sort of thing, become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. All right, this email is from patron Xavier. He writes, here in France, here in France, we ha- he's in France. Here in France, we have a thing called psychotherapy institutionnel. So, if I was to use my best caricature of French accent, I would say psychotherapy institutionnel. That's terrible. <laughs> here I am, just starting at the top, just making fun of a patron. Okay, patron Xavier. He writes: Here in France, we have a thing called psychotherapy institutionnel which is institutional psychotherapy translated poorly into English. It's a, it's a school of thought that focuses on understanding dynamics between patients and staff in a psychiatric hospital. It tries to address how the institution tends to alienate staff and patients by producing oppressive rules. And so this psychotherapy institutionnel tries to change the rules for the benefit of everyone involved. For example, I've been working at an institution like this. The staff comprises of not only psych people, but also artists and farmers and teachers, etc. And you are free to go wherever you want. You are given a lot of autonomy as a patient and as a staff member. So just chiming in here, it appears that he's working at a hospital, an inpatient hospital in which there are uh, mental health patients who are there all the time and... Uh, it sounds like they're trying to break from the traditional hospital model that is often used. And so he's saying the the staff comprises of not only psych people, but also artists, farmers, and teachers. I'm trying to imagine how farmers would work into this. I suppose maybe there's a there's a bit of land outside that everyone can farm. That's, that's great. Uh, going on with the email. And you are free to go wherever you want. You were given a lot of autonomy as a patient and as a staff member. The hierarchy between staff members is reduced to a minimum. Staff is not seen as staff, and patients are not seen as patients. Instead, they are all seen as adults who are trying to cooperate. And we don't focus on psychotherapy so much. The institution is managed by everyone. Everyone takes part in activities. The hospital doesn't even look like a hospital. I've been participating in a project like this, and it's just amazing how the place feels. It's full of life and creativity. You can tell that the patients really benefit from this sort of institution. End of email. Yeah, patron Xavier, I don't have 
any, you know, it's so funny. Once you get to a certain point in your career or a certain age, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to say for sure that I haven't worked in a hospital ever, (laughs) an inpatient hospital, because my job has been kind of random over the years, but uh, I can, I can, I'm 99% sure I've never worked in a hospital. (laughs) I might have to look at my CV, but so, so I don't have any experience in this. I, I certainly have experience with my own clients having spent some time in a inpatient psychiatric ward is what we might call it in Seattle. And I've actually had friends who have spent time in a psychiatric ward and visited them and seen kind of what it's like. The, the main ones in the Seattle area are Harborview, Fairfax, and the University of Washington. And I have, um, uh, you know, seen it from the outside, but my experience is pretty limited, but Xavier's workplace sounds amazing. And I, I'm sure that it helps. I'm sure it presents a lot of difficulties for the staff and maybe the patients too, but particularly for the staff in that they have to adjust to a completely other culture and they have to adopt a a very, um, shall we say, collaborative approach with the patients instead of a very oppressive or hierarchical uh, model, because that's usually the way things go, right? You're a patient, you know, you have patients who are told what to do and don't have any power, and then you have the staff who have all the power. And this institution, uh, this this model of inpatient uh, really breaks from that tradition. So, Uh, Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it's like, why do we treat people with a mental illness as if they're prisoners, right? Why do do we treat them like, you know, like the the stark example of this is one one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? These people are absolutely prisoners and they're absolutely is a huge hierarchy, nurse ratchet and all that kind of stuff. And you can imagine that that could create a lot of difficulties for the patient, but also for the staff. Imagine, imagine, I'm just imagining, and I know people who work in these inpatient facilities, you're a staff member and it takes a toll on you when you're forced to be in a position where you're the bad guy all the time and you're having to exert control over another human being all the time. It's like the Zimbardo Stanford prison experiment situation where you make some people prisoners and you make some people prison guards. And over time, everyone suffers. Obviously, the prisoners suffer because they're being abused. But the prison guards also suffer because they're made, they're forced socially into a situation that makes them sadistic or at the very least disrespectful and, and hurtful. And so now, now all are, are all inpatient facilities harmful and abusive? Absolutely not. Um, I I don't know that much about it, but I suspect that this this very collaborative model of inpatient is um, controversial. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, it's just it's not my area. But thanks for writing in Xavier and turning us on to this idea. It's that's very interesting. Let us know how things are going over there. All right, I thought I would end this episode on one more email from Patron Noel who writes in, Hey there, I'd like to say that you guys and gals are great and I appreciate what you do so much. I feel like I am learning so much about everything and about myself. I'm a huge mu- I'm a huge movie and TV buff and I love your episodes on movies and TV characters. 
there are so many movies that I would love to hear your thoughts on. And she provides a, a bunch of movie theater, movie um, uh, titles, and I thought I would just sort of read them and talk about them. Uh, I can tell that patron Noel it has a sophisticated palette when it comes to movies because the movies that she's super into are very interesting and complicated, let's say. The first one that she recommends that I talk about is The Changeling, or Changeling, which I did a whole episode on that because Patreon asked, asked me to. It's a movie that um, is directed by Clint Eastwood. Angelina Jolie plays, plays uh, the lead character. It's based on a true story, and it, it's fairly accurate to this true, true story. It's not one of those you know, BS based on a true story situations. It's actually a, f- a fairly accurate re- representation of what actually happened. It's a true story about Christine Collins who lived in California and she was committed to an insane asylum because she wouldn't. So basically her kid was abducted and the police found this random kid who and it became a nationwide sensation. You know, it's like this Christine Collins, her son has been abducted. And, and this boy who was running away from home uh, in like Illinois or something came forward and said that he was Christine Collins son, even though he wasn't the police in LA were so desperate for a positive uh, story to occur in the papers, you know, because it was a national thing. And so if the, if the LA police could be seen as heroic in that they reunited this, you know, poor woman and their son and her son together, then the LA police, it would be good for PR, but they did it in a very public way in which the press was there when Christine Collins is looking at the boy and saying, that's not my son. And the, the, the cops are terrified because now they're going to look even dumber and they have a bunch of bad press already. And so so the uh, captain or whoever was in charge just forced Christine Collins to take this son home. He's like, no, 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 you, you don't know what you're talking about. You're hysterical uh, or, you know, your, your son has changed over the past couple of months. You just you just don't know. And Christine Collins is like, um, I know my son and this isn't him, uh, you know, and it is a commentary on sexism, on uh, just marginalization, on corruption and motivated reasoning and systems of power. And it's, it's very, it, it's, it's so bizarre that you wouldn't think it was true. You wouldn't think it was a true story. Um, and, and so uh, Christine Collins played by Angelina Jolie eventually starts to really confront the police and say, because she tries to give the kid back. She's like, look, this kid's fine, but he's not my son. And and um, there's all these like empirical evidence that it's not the son either because he's – there's just all these like markers. Plus, it's like what mother doesn't know her own son, right? <laughs> um, especially since she had one child and it was – and she's a single parent. So, you know, she spent a lot of kid with – a lot of time with her kid. And anyway, she tries to get the police to – because uh, she has two concerns. One is, is like this boy, this stranger is living in my house and the boy w- kept insisting that he was her son, even though he wasn't. And he was lying because he was trying to um, 
run away from home and he, he just did he but he was desperate too in some ways but so christine collins is like look i have this stranger living in my house that's acting like he's my son and he's not and i don't know what to do about that i feel like something should be you know this kid needs help you know why would he be lying so so there's that issue and then the other issue is it's like where is my son and now that you think you have found my son, you've stopped looking for him, but my son is still out there. And so she's trying in a very polite way, trying to communicate this to the police. And she kind of escalates over the span of you know weeks and months. And eventually the police get so tired of her that they put her in an insane asylum, you know, in a, in an institution for the mentally ill, because the police at this time could all they had to do was just submit some kind of like um, order to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was like in bed with the police. And so they would instantly just lock this woman up without any due process or anything because, well, if she's mentally ill and this is indicative of sexism within psychiatry and medicine going back uh, eons <laughs> back to the Egyptians, we have evidence of this in terms of, the no, notion of hysteria. Anyway, so Changeling, interesting movie. Uh, I gave it a five out of 10. I thought that as a kind of document of something that happened in history, I thought it was worth it. Uh, there's not any cheesiness in it. And it's, you know, it's got the crime element to it as well. Um, and the, the sort of period piece issue, but it's a little long and it's a little slow, shall I say, um, so it's, it's not like super entertaining, but I, I would say it's worth watching. I think it's on Netflix anyway. The, uh, that is Changeling. All right. Another movie that Patreon Noel wants me to talk about is The Believer. And I actually, uh, rented this on DVD because there's so many movies that you can't get on streaming any, uh, you have to buy it or something. And so I still, I still have that Netflix DVD thing because, I think this is just me bragging at this point, but I think the true marker of a movie buff is someone who still has the the DVD option of of Netflix because so many movies are not available uh, on streaming or free streaming. And so uh, if you want to see – and I and I don't want to like just choose from the random shows that just happen to be on Netflix. I, I, w- I want to see what I want to see when I want to see it, god damn it, and I'll wait five days for that thing to arrive in the mail. Anyway, so I rented The Believer, and um, and uh, she says, Patron Noel says, I've, I've thought about this movie every day since I saw it years ago. So you can tell that Patron Noel has a, has a very sophisticated – because this movie is complicated. came out 2001, and it stars a very young Ryan Gosling. Not like Mouseketeer's young Ryan Gosling, but like 19, 20-year-old Ryan Gosling. And in my opinion, Ryan Gosling was a much better actor when he was 20. His current acting style bothers me. He's, he's so just non-existent. I mean, even in the movies where he's good, like um, – Wise Guys. Was that the movie title? Wise Guys. And I thought La La Land, he was okay. But I just feel like he just doesn't, he just doesn't uh, give anything. You know, if when you consider a guy like uh, Matt Damon or Leonardo DiCaprio or even Tom Cruise for that matter, I mean, these people give the audience something. Ryan Gosling is like this blank thing. <laughs> he just, it's, and you can tell that he's, purposely choosing to be blank 
because in these early days, he's like, he's really an amazing actor when he was 20. He plays this Jewish kid who becomes a neo-Nazi in, in, you know, modern times in New York city, I think. And it's, it's really interesting. It has Billy Zane in it, which is, I think Billy Zane's in it, which is kind of interesting, but it, he, it, it, so it's this Jewish kid who becomes a neo-Nazi and he's a very militant, angry, hostile, almost murderous neo-Nazi. Uh, he's a, he's an extremist. He's basically like a burgeoning terrorist, white kid living in, in New York city. And the interesting part about this movie is solely focused on the Ryan Gosling character. And again, the movie is called the believer 2001. And there's a lot of debates. And of course, you know, neo-Nazism is completely ridiculous, but the way that the Ryan Gosling character argues on, you know, as a proponent of neo-Nazism, you, you really begin to kind of see the world that neo-Nazis live in, or at least as proposed by the the writers of this movie. Um, and it's an interesting uh, look into someone who's highly conflicted, obviously, because he's Jewish. Okay. Another movie that Patron Noel recommended was The Witch. It came out a couple years ago, 2015. Patron Noel writes, I'm fascinated with what might be going through that girl's mind during that time of period, during that time period in that family. Also, it discusses a, a lot of patriarchy, religious zealotry, fear, and feminism issues. Yeah, I uh, got this on uh, Netflix uh, DVDs because Patron Noel uh, suggested this movie. Yeah, f- fascinating movie it's hard to describe it's the first feature film from this director i'm excited to see what he makes next because this movie has a very strong and effective style Um, oh by the way i gave the believer six out of ten again thought it was a good movie you know definitely worth watching uh casually uh but overall it it just kind of lacked a plot if that makes any sense you know just it was it was an interesting look into that world, but and again, six out of ten. That's that's a you know that's definitely a, a, what I would say a good rating for for me. Uh, the Witch I gave seven out of ten. Uh, I really like this movie. It's hard for me to tell why I like this movie actually, um, and it's hard to describe the movie. It, it takes place during the early days of the British colonies in New England, and there are a lot of religious tensions. You know, a lot of the British people who came to New England during the colonial days, they came here because they were trying to get away from the church. They wanted to operate Christianity the way that, you know, they felt was more pure to the word of God. You know, you had the, the pilgrims and the Quakers and the, you know, all those people and they, uh, the Puritans, they, um, so this movie begins with this. Uh, so the movie begins with there's a community in New England in you know in what would later become United States of America, and uh, there's an even smaller group of people who are who are disgusted with 
the colonial Christianity. So they, so they split off from the main churches and they head out into so this one family heads out into the wilderness and there's, you know, mom and dad and five kids and they head out into the wilderness to practice their own Christianity. So they're super isolated in, in the woods and, and the woods have this sort of scary um, notion to it, you know, and the movie is based on actual documents and statements from actual people during this time. So it's even certain lines in the movie are pulled from historical documents of this time. Uh, Cause there was a lot of witch talk at the time. There's a lot of accusing women mainly of being witches, right? The Salem witch trials and all that kind of stuff. And so the, basically the through line over this plot of this movie is that uh, the oldest sibling, the girl, the, the oldest sister, she slowly gets accused of being a witch by, by everybody, but it's very slow and, and progressive. Um, and you get to see the family dynamics, you know, between the parents and what, what's really interesting about this movie is how they basically recreated what it would have been like for people to live like this during this time. Uh, I listened to some do- some uh, commentary by the director, and he said that he spent a lot of time trying to make this as authentic as possible, and you really feel it. You, you, the house that they live in, the way the you know the way that they farm, the way that the sort of the way they dress, the sort of activities they did during the day, you you really get a very gritty sense for what this was like for them, which I just always think it's just so interesting. It always makes me appreciate my current life. You know, here I get to just blabber into a microphone all day and I don't have to like walk to get water from the creek. You know, um, I can just, uh, you know, grab this glass of water right next to me and drink it. Um, anyway, so, uh, but, but also it's just fascinating to, to just get a glimpse into what it might've been like for people in the past. Um, it's also made in the the direction is of the witch, the movie The Witch. It's also made in in kind of a um, a, sur- a surreal manner. It's it's hard to know what is real and what isn't. Um, it's it's hard to know what the director was exactly meaning by this movie because in some ways it's surreal, but in another way you could just take it as like a true story in a way. It, it's just it's hard to know. Um, it almost kind of dips into the horror genre, kind of more just like thriller horror. Like if you like a horror, if you like horror movie, my guess, if you like horror as a genre, in all likelihood, you'll like The Witch from 2015 because it takes the horror genre and really, um, you know, changes it quite a bit. But if you don't like horror, my guess is you would still like this movie. But at the same time, if a movie that doesn't really have any plot and doesn't really, and does definitely doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, and, and you don't like violence in movies, then I, I wouldn't watch this, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, as patron Noel is saying, it's interesting to see how religious zealotry plays out and the way that people saw the world back then. 
you know, because they didn't just think of witches and fairies as these, as fairy tales. They, they literally believed in witches. They, why would you kill your own children if you didn't really believe in witches? I mean, they, they, they literally believed in demons and witches and, and they, and the, and the demons and the witches, they lived with them, um, you know, in everyday life. Especially like there's a lot of woods talk, you know, it's like, don't go into the woods because the witch will get you. And I think, and they, they kind of comment on that too. Like, well, the only reason why mom and dad say that is because they're trying to get us not to go in the woods. You know, there's not a real witch there or something, you know, so they, they kind of comment on that stuff. Okay. Next movie that patron Noel wants me to uh, see and comment on is blue Valentine. Yeah. I saw this back in the day when it came out. Uh, patron Noel says, I found this movie to be an uncomfortably realistic depiction of a failing relationship and would love your thoughts on their characters. Yeah, I loved this movie. I gave it a 9 out of 10, which is uh, a very rare rating for me. It's in my top 200 movies of all times, of all times, of all time, uh, out of, you know, like, I don't know, 5,000 plus movies or something. I would put it in the top 200. Directed by Derek Cien France. Cien France? I don't know how to pronounce that name. But by a director named Derek, somebody. And he also directed The Place Beyond the Pines, which is a beautiful movie. Also has Ryan Gosling in it. Blue Valentine has Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. Ryan Gosling in this movie still is sort of acting. His acting is kind of blunted, but... He his acting is I think better in this movie than it than it, in more recent movies. I think what happened to Ryan Gosling was the movie Drive. You know, Drive was this re- very popular movie among a certain group of people, and I think he was highly encouraged to be extremely blank in that movie. And since then, I feel like he's kind of blunted in his acting style. Anyway. Uh, Blue Valentine, it's a very realistic, as Noel patron, the patron Noel is saying, it's a very realistic depiction of a couple who, who are struggling with their intimacy. You really feel their conflict. And it sounds like a huge bummer of a movie because they're, you know, it's about marital conflict. But it's more than that. But it basically is that. It's just a lot of just different scenes. Um, and you really feel the fact that they want to connect, but they just have such a hard time. And it has some really cute um, romantic moments. There's this moment where uh, Ryan Gosling is singing this song and they're kind of dancing. And I don't know, it just has, it has a, it, it, it has a very romantic feel good element to it, but it also has, a, they sort of flash back and forward. You also get a sense for, what real humans are like in terms of their vulnerabilities and their, their relational traumas and how that can be triggered in a relationship and cause a kind of cascade effect between people in which they're fighting all the time. All right. Another movie. She has a lot of movies here. So, you know, strap yourself in here. Um, Brokeback mountain. Uh, Patron Noel says, this is one of her all time favorite movies. She says, I really liked the complexity behind the characters' love for one another. Yeah, uh, I love this movie too. Eight out of ten stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Heath Ledger, Michelle Williams. Directed by Ang Lee, 
Ang Lee is one of my favorite directors of all time. I find that a lot of Americans don't know about him, but when I list his movies, they're like, oh yeah, I like a lot of those movies. Um, he directed Life of Pi, Brokeback Mountain, Hulk, which a lot of people didn't like, but I liked that one. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, he directed. The Ice Storm with a young Frodo Baggins in that. Sense and Sensibility back in 95 and 94, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which I sh- I show clips of that movie in some of my classes as a way of demonstrating family dynamics. Um, yeah, Brokeback Mountain, the movie is amazing. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. It's incredibly sad. I mean, everyone suffers in this movie. And there's this one scene that I, I, I often think about. I, I just find myself reminiscing about this one scene in this movie, even though I saw it I don't know, years ago. What Broken Book Mountain was, oh, five. Oh, my God, it was 12 years ago. Just think about that for a second. I mean, if you would have asked me, I would have said like, oh, you know, four years ago. 12 years ago, Brokeback Mountain? That's crazy. Um, okay. But so anyway... I haven't seen it since it came out, actually. I've seen it just one time. I know Patron Noel has seen it. I, th- I think she says she watches it like hundreds of times. and um, So she really likes it. But um, anyway, 12 years, seen it once. There's a few scenes that I still are just, are just burned in my brain. There's a scene where Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger is married to the Michelle Williams character. And they're at a 4th of July celebration. And there's these douchebags. I might I might be getting the scene wrong, but if I think this is how it goes, there's there's some douchebags that are kind of harassing Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams, and Heath Ledger's character is trying to be nice and he's you know he's trying to say hey guys you know let's back off, and then like push comes to shove and Heath Ledger just like brings the hammer down, and he there's and he's you know he's got that cowboy outfit on and he's protecting Michelle Williams and he he's he's beaten back the douchebags and and then the camera I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it the camera sweeps down and looks up at Heath Ledger as he's standing there proud uh not proud of himself but he just seems like a you know a proud guy or someone you would be proud of and the 4th of July fireworks are going off behind him it sounds super cheesy and I guess it is but there's just something about that scene that is just so Ang Lee that he could take, you know, really a Hollywood trope where the, the quiet tough guy, uh, you know, beats back the, the bullies, but there's something about the way Ang Lee can build characters and build scenes. That's just amazing. And that's why crouching tiger, crouching tiger, hidden dragon is by far my favorite Kung Fu movie of all. I mean, I, I don't know a single Kung Fu movie that comes close to Crouching Tiger. I mean, the facial expressions, the relationships, the the character development, the softness, the the morality involved, and of course the fighting is amazing. But a lot of Kung Fu movies have great fightings. But the thing that really differentiates Crouching Tiger is just the the characters and the way that they feel. Anyway, so Brokeback Mountain, uh, it's amazing. And uh, yeah, she actually, uh, Patreon Noel actually sent another email asking me to comment on or evaluate her or something about, because she's really into that movie Brokeback and she uh, will often watch it 
in a way that like she cries during the movie because it's very sad, you know, and and she'll recreationally rewatch the movie, even though she knows she's going to cry. And I kind of went back and forth with her about it. And if I remember right, we basically collaboratively landed on the analysis that she just really has the need to um, cry, you know, as we all do. And watching this sad movie provides her with provides her psyche with an outlet to let out those emotions. You know, it's like listening to a really sad song. You're, um, you know, purposely listening to a song that makes you cry, purposely listening to a song that moves you. Also, it can be very exhilarating to cry. It can be very exhilarating to feel emotion. Right. And I mean, that's why I go to the movies anyway, right? Any movie I go to, I'm hoping to be moved somehow. I'm hoping to be moved to tears. I'm hoping to be moved to laughter. I'm hoping to be inspired. That That's why I love movies so much, because they can be so inspirational and so moving. And uh, so I think what Patron Noel is experiencing is 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 just that, you know, she she wants she knows this movie will move her. And there's something very invigorating and, and life affirming, you know, it, if we're not moved, then we're just boring lumps of, you know, carbon based life. But if we are moved, then, you know, we transcend ourselves, if that makes any sense. Anyway, another movie she recommends is in the bedroom, which uh, I saw back in the day. It's, uh, she says, Patron Noel says, it's an older movie which had a huge impact on me. The, psycholo- the psychology of the characters, the jealousy, the lust, the anger, uh, which all drives the actions of the characters and the effects of those actions afterwards. Yeah, I gave this 7 out of 10. I really liked it. I, I remember, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I, I remember really liking this movie. It's an intense story about regular suburban people, but um, and it's a crime story, and it's a it's a story about grief, but it's it's a good movie, and um, it's a simple movie, but it's also complex. It's got a lot of tension in it. Um, I wonder if it would still hold up today, given all the various other excellent dramas that have come out in between. But at the time, I remember being very really impressed with with it. So as you can tell, uh, Patron Noel has a again a very a very sophisticated palette of movies. You know, none of these are like, you know, Star Wars or My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You know, it's all it's all uh, extremely intense movies. Another movie uh, she talks about here is Trance. She says, with James McAvoy, which I found entertaining, but very unrealistic. I would love to hear your thoughts about the therapy and the hyp- uh, hyp- hypnosis in the movie and how unrealistic it might actually be. Yeah, this is a 2013 movie not that long ago, directed by Danny Boyle, who has directed a lot of great movies, Slumdog Millionaire, Steve Jobs, Shallow Graves, uh, Shallow Grave, which is the first movie that I th- saw of his back, you know, early 90s. Train Spotting, 127 hours, 28 days later. It's a very accomplished director, pretty sure he's Scottish, not sure. Um and he directed this this uh this uh terrible movie. <laughs> um it sounds like Patron Noel uh, found it entertaining, but uh, I found it so unrealistic that I couldn't like it. It, I mean, you know, Star Wars obviously is unrealistic, so 
there's a lot of unrealism in movies that doesn't bother me, but I don't know. I think this movie all just also was just tonally just, just not my thing. Um, I gave it a one out of 10, which means that I utterly hated this movie. <laughs> so I don't remember exactly why I hated it, but apparently I really hated it. Yeah. It, you know, hypnosis in the general hypnosis is almost, you know, I would venture to say that every single depiction of, of hypnosis in popular culture is unrealistic is not even just unrealistic because that implies like maybe it could be true. I'm talking like just patently false. The premises that these filmmakers and TV people and book writers put on hypnosis is just laughable. As I've said before, imagine if hypnosis actually worked the way that it did in the movies. Well, if, if, and plus hypnosis, apparently like any old shrink can learn it, right? So there's hundreds of thousands of shrinks. If all of us learned, and, and you know, there's a good percentage of people who actually, you know, become certified hip, hypnotherapists. Imagine if, if hypnosis actually worked the way it did. Well, all of us would just have armies of human beings doing whatever we wanted them to do. Imagine if a, cause he, he just, let me just <laughs> give one example. Most, uh, people who are experts in hypnosis are married to somebody, right? How many of those, uh, you know, hypnotist experts are married to someone whom they would wish they could hypnotize and change at least part of them, right? Think for yourself, all of you, all of you people who are involved in a relationship or just involved with anybody, a coworker or something. Imagine if you could hypnotize them, to do anything you wanted to, and you could hypnotize them to forget that they were hypnotized. So you could, you know, the guy next to you who always sniffs his snot, it drives me crazy when people do that. It's like, just blow your nose. Imagine if you could hypnotize them to get them to blow their nose instead of sniffing their snot into their nose all day long. Um, imagine if you could hypnotize your spouse to, uh, I don't know, like, have sex with you more often or have sex with you less often <laughs> or, uh, or I don't know, let you have a threesome <laughs> or something. Imagine if hypnotism actually worked like it did in the movies, this world would look a lot differently. Right. But of course we don't live in that world. And of course, hypnotism does not work that way. Hypnotism is a thing, but it's not, the hypnotism you see in the movies. It, it, I, I suspect in 50 years, hopefully this will be something that people will look back on movies like trance and they'll say, remember back in the day when they thought that that was crazy. Cause today you can make a movie like trance and like people will be like, Oh yeah. Hypnotism. Yeah. That works that way. It's, it's similar to the way 50 years ago or even, I don't know, 30 years ago you could have an entire movie, a serious drama and comedies like Gilligan's Island based on hip, on amnesia, based on the idea that if you get hit on the head, you can wake up and have completely, uh, you won't know who you are or you'll forget who people are or, and then you get hit on the head again and you remember everything. So 30 years ago, this was a, this was a belief. People thought this to be true. And of course, 
experts on the brain were pulling their hair out going, that's not how amnesia works. You can't just get hit on the head and wake up and, and have that kind of amnesia and then get hit on the head again and have it all come back. Like that it, amnesia does not work that way. Most people today, 2017, understand that, right? Well, that's because experts on the brain have been slowly but meth- you know, methodically beating that idea into our heads so that we no longer use that in movies anymore. At least I hope we don't. Well, it's going to take another 50 years of us beating it into people's heads that hypnotism does not work like this. <laughs> um, so anyway, another movie that uh, Patron Noel is talking about is uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Martha Marcy May Marlene. Uh, she says, it's about a young girl who's in a cult but tries to escape. Yeah. Uh, this is a recent movie. I, I like this movie, 8 out of 10. It's a very gripping and realistic depiction of what it would be like to be in a modern-day cult. Uh, it's an excellent film. It's got a lot of emotion, a lot of trauma, a lot of a lot of tension. And it, it tells you, it shows you how someone could be in a cult. Because, you know, the way we have... Uh, the vision we have in our minds of a cult is like it's it's often very nefarious, right? It's often very scary. But cults aren't actually like that. Cults, actual cults, are actually very inviting and welcoming, and are very appealing to to even people like you, listeners. If you just encountered a cult and you didn't know it was a cult, you you would likely uh, feel very welcome. You'd likely really want to stay. It's not until later when you try to leave or when you try to oppose the charismatic leader that the cult-like features that are bad start to emerge. Anyway, so uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene. Yeah, it's an interesting movie. Eight out of ten. Another movie here that she mentions, Rabbit Hole. Rabbit Hole. It's about a couple who loses their young son and their struggle afterwards. Yeah, uh, again, very intense movie. Uh, I gave it a 7 out of 10. It's you know definitely worth watching. Another movie here that she wants me to talk about is A Single Man. And she says, it's about a gay man who loses his partner in the 60s and struggles to live without him. Yeah, I really like this movie. I gave it a 8 out of 10. It's it's entertaining. It's um, interesting period piece, you know, about the 60s, directed by Tom Ford, who also directed a recent movie, 2016, Nocturnal Animals, I, which I loved. I, I thought Nocturnal Animals, Nocturnal Animals was amazing. I gave that one also an 8 out of 10. So single, A Single Man, 2009, Colin Firth, Julianne Moore, uh, pretty, pretty amazing movie. Another movie here, California. Patron Noel says... David Duchovny and Brad Pitt. Duchovny writes a book about serial killers, and Pitt's performance was jaw-dropping, in my opinion. Yeah, I um, saw this movie when it came out in 1993. I rated it a 4 out of 10. So I, I barely remember this movie. I, I definitely remember it, but I gave it a, a 4 out of 10. So uh, who knows? Um Directed by Dominic Cena, who also directed Gone in 60 Seconds, Swordfish, um, other movies like that. Um, yeah, I I remember th- Brad Pitt is great. I think he can really nail performances, and 
if I remember right, he did pretty good in, in this one. Uh, yeah, Brad Pitt, Dave Duchovny, uh, Juliette Lewis, uh, other people like that. Uh, yeah, interesting movie, if I remember right. Okay, so those are the movies. Uh, again, just to review, these are Patron Noel's recommendations to other patrons and other people to watch. We got Changeling with Angelina Jolie. We have The Believer with Ryan Gosling. We have The Witch. Uh, we have Blue Valentine with Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. We have Brokeback Mountain with Jake Gyllenhaal, Heath Ledger, and Michelle Williams. We have In the Bedroom. Uh, we have Trance, which I which I don't recommend, but you know if you want to torture yourself, then go ahead. <laughs> we have Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is great, uh, eight out of ten. Rabbit Hole, which is good. Single Man gave eight out of ten. Uh, California, she recommends this movie as well. So um, yeah. Uh, I wish I could do full episodes on each of these movies, but I have so many emails I'm trying to get to. I thought I would just kind of power through it in in one episode. Uh, maybe at a later time I'll tackle like Brokeback Mountain or Blue Valentine or something. Uh, we shall see. But thanks for writing in, Patron Noel. We always appreciate you and your patronhood. All right, well... Let me know what you think, Patron Noel. Uh, am I a terrible person for hating for hating trance and for not being super into California? Uh, remember that maybe if I rewatched California, you know, it's been 24 years since I've seen it. Um, maybe I would like it again, but anyway. Also, all of you out there, um, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> 